0: this is the think la podcast from los angeles the center of advertising marketing and media Thanks for joining us today. We have a great episode and a great panel talking about business boycotts and social media influence. With the recent Facebook boycott, with issues surrounding moderation and content and misinformation, there's a lot to talk about. Our moderator is Lauren Johnson, senior advertising reporter for Business Insider, Jessica Moreno, co founder and chief product officer for Mesh, Kevin Sammy, former advisor to President Obama and Chris Paul, Executive Director at Verizon. We hope you enjoy this episode, and we ask you to go to thinkla.org for more webinars, events, education, and professional development. Please join or renew today. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to our Think Thursday's webinar series. I'm Don Lupo, Think LA Executive Director, and we're so glad you could join us today. Before we get started, just a few reminders. A week from today, on August 13th, we'll be celebrating the best creative work in L.A. at our Virtual Idea Awards. It's our 10th anniversary, and tickets and bundles are still available, so please head to our website and register today. Our most popular professional development series, Professional, I'm sorry, Presentation Skills, will have its next session starting August 17th. There's limited space available for the class, so register for that today as well. Please visit our website at thinkla.org to register for our newsletter and find out about more upcoming events and programming, including other webinars and podcasts. And now to our program. Social media platforms are seeing civil rights leaders and allies alike calling attention to rampant racism, users being confronted with wild misinformation, and advertisers left wondering where they can ethically advertise and where they need to draw the line on hate speech and misinformation. Multiple headlines each day tell the story. As a business model, as a venue for engagement online, as a de facto public square leading up to a consequential election, social media is facing big challenges that demand our collective attention and our creativity to solve. During this conversation, please submit your questions via the Q&A button at the bottom of your Zoom screen. We'll address them at the end of our presentation. And now please welcome Lauren Johnson, today's moderator.
1: Hi Don. thanks so much um, for setting up this webinar and inviting me to do this. We've got a great group to talk through some of this with and I'm, I'm excited because it's obviously an issue that's uh, very timely and in the news heavily these days. Um, so like you mentioned, uh, we will be talking about the role of social media in both democracy and advertising just given how much we're seeing um, civil rights leaders really calling for the platforms to better address racism and misinformation, um, particularly leading up to the, the US election later this year. I mean, yesterday uh, there, were 20, there was a letter from 20 state attorneys uh, to Facebook asking for a kind of a clear plan in terms of how the platform handles misinformation and hateful content. Uh, just in July we've had hundreds of advertisers recently participating in this large-scale boycott of Facebook over similar uh, types of concerns you've seen Twitter handle things um, more recently a little bit differently than other platforms there's also been a large congressional hearing um, last week with the the CEOs of the four big tech companies to over antitrust concerns that suggest that perhaps these companies have too much power um, so we're really excited to kind of talk to everyone. And I thought we might start with just doing some quick intros if everybody could join us. We'll go around and do a quick intro. So in the direction I see it. um, Kevin, do you wanna start?
2: There we go. Okay, now now hopefully everyone can hear me. Uh, Thanks so much Lauren and, and couldn't agree more with how timely the conversation is. Hi, everyone. My name is Kevin Sammy. Um, I uh, uh, have done a, a few things with my time since government, but I, I'm, I'm here to, to kind of present that perspective. Uh, I was uh, an advisor in the Obama administration on a few different capacities. Um, I have uh, some policy expertise in regulations, but one place I did spend some time was in, in the national security space. Uh, so thinking about the, the ramifications of this kind of uh, complex social media um, System and how it interacts with people and with commerce uh, and democracy is, is one thing I'm, I'm excited to speak to today because it's definitely a challenge that, that needs to be addressed. Uh, and in addition to that, um, the, the national security piece is, is really material. Uh, there are more than a few ways that, that uh, we are exposed um, when it comes to security of our democracy and, and, and otherwise to, to, to threats, and that's a huge part of this. So um, that's what I'm bringing to the table. Thanks, Lauren.
1: Great. Uh,
3: Chris? Thanks, Lauren. Uh, yeah, my name is Chris Paul. Uh, i been in the digital media and marketing space for a little over 20 years. Uh, most recently, I'm here representing Verizon. Uh, right now, look after digital marketing for Verizon uh, for our centralized corporate marketing team. Um, and as you mentioned, uh, we we are currently paused on, uh, on Facebook and Instagram um, uh, as a result of some uh, some violations of our content policies and things like that. We're currently working with Facebook and all, frankly, all of our marketing partners and media partners uh, to make sure that they all uh, adhere to the standards that we set in the marketplace. And it's not the first time that we've, we've been through a situation like this. So it is something that we've tried to consistently enforce and uphold uh, for the past several years. And I'm happy to talk more about that as we get into the uh, discussion.
4: Great, and Jessica? Hi, um, thank you. I'm Jessica Moreno. I've been in online community management for over 10 years um, and my work in, has included um, reddit.com where I helped craft new policies around revenge porn and harassment um, in an effort to make the site healthier and just overall better. Great.
1: We've got um, some, some great opinions from and, and voices from different sides of of the issue. So I think that's going to be a a great, um, great topic for everybody. Why don't, just to begin with, just to kind of like lay, I guess, the ground a little bit. And uh, Chris, I believe, sort of alluded to this uh, a second ago, but would love to get some thoughts on just kind of how you think um, we got here. And also why this is, you know, specifically kind of ballooned into such a large issue as of late. uh, Some of these Issues aren't necessarily brand new, Um, but be curious about kind of why why you think we're seeing this so much in the news uh, these days, and why it's such a such a prevalent topic.
3: Yeah, I mean, to lead off, I appreciate it. The you know what I've seen in, in the years since I've been doing this is you know we we have longed to apply some of the traditions and the, and the standards that we typically were able to enjoy in the uh, more traditional marketing and media space to what we do in digital advertising, it's natural. Um, but what we found is that as, as the viewers and the eyeballs uh, have moved to user-generated uh, content platforms, uh, or sharing platforms, blogs, call them what you want. You know, the ability to have editorial control over the content of those sites has is very different than than what we experienced in the past. Doesn't make the situation any different for advertisers, right? You still have the same concerns around implied endorsements of content or brand safety and things like that. We want to we want to uphold those things. Uh, it's just a much different. Ch- it's a very different challenge than it used to be. And I think one of the other things that I've seen is that um, some platforms uh, in, the, in the social media space kind of are trying to position themselves as technology companies versus media companies. And uh, technology companies operate, I think, in a slightly different set of standards. So technology is free to be used, however, and the technology itself is not often held liable or accountable for how people use it. You know, if you think about a laptop computer or a cell phone can be used for a lot of different reasons, some of them nefarious, but you would never sue Lenovo. Apple you know, for something that happens with those devices. It's not the way it works. We think that for advertisers, uh, if you are taking on advertising dollars as part of your revenue, then you have to think about the advertiser's needs for brand safety and content adjacency and everything else, which is why we've really leaned in over the course of the past few years uh, to make sure that the technology and and social media space and publisher space writ large understands what those standards are. Uh, We work with them. Uh, to help them up level their systems and platforms and integrate third party tech and other things to make it work uh, it 's just that some are able to move faster than others, some address it more quickly than others, and that 's why this is probably going to continue to be a topic uh, for the foreseeable future is that as
1: the landscape changes mm-hmm. yeah Kevin, what do you see there? I mean, I know you know Obama was obviously known for uh, being a very social president and how he embraced um different platforms so yeah, would love your thoughts on kind of how we, how we
2: got here. Yeah, certainly, certainly. Uh, you know, if, and I'll reference a few, a few things that, that Chris said, which I, I think helps to round out the conversation because ultimately these platforms have humans on them, they have government officials on them and, and companies, right? Commerce happens uh, in, in, in open space digitally these ways. So, so yeah, so I, I uh, you know, President Obama was known to be the, one of the, we should say just the timing worked out and he really took advantage of and, and made use of, let's say, the, the rise of social media and that connectivity. Uh, and things like the Arab Spring benefited from people being able to connect. Um, it, to answer the prompt, you know, how, how did we get here? I, I truly believe this is a situation where the information age has gotten too big for the American electorate to handle, you know, via uh, how the tech companies operate in this space. Um, it's, it's metastasized in, in a sense. Um, the... the when I was I worked at the Pentagon for about a year. I worked for the Defense Secretary at, uh, in the communications capacity. But from that vantage point, I saw on a daily basis, minute to minute basis, uh, uh, Russian um, uh, agency officials, so government officials, would would ping hack- hackers would ping what we call CIPRNET, which is our secure network uh, that all mil- military operations, policy discussions happen on. Um, now what we have is a very open. System that uh, it, that rightfully embraces free expression of ideas and information. We have uh, the ability for for a uh, Russian bot or troll or some nefarious actor uh, to basically portray themselves as something they're not. Um, this really parlays into that conversation that Chris is bringing to the table about how media uh, how media operates versus social media, where user generated content starts to get in the mix, right? So if a Verizon has to treat social media like conventional media social media does not play doesn't have regulations and rules to control for this kind of nefarious activity so that's that is part of this um how it's gotten away from us right the uh these companies aren't necessarily having to abide by, by certain rules um one way to think about it is you know if you are uh um a uh if, if you are operating in a way where you are uh, posting something that's hateful on, in you know, the Wall Street Journal, let's say you want to run an ad, um, there's there are ways for that to be uh, sort of filtered and, and sorted so it doesn't happen. But you have this ability on social media to just run with what you want to run with because of the business model, and that's the last thing I'll, I'll kind of say to punctuate this point: um, an article that. Probably, I think maybe a month or so ago, a little less than a couple months ago, the, speaking of the Wall Street Journal, uh, it talked about Facebook executives being aware of rampant misinformation and, and hateful information on the site and doing nothing about it because the business model is not a su- sufficient replacement for the. Regulatory or rural infrastructure that needs to govern or has to exist to govern these these uh, spaces now uh, And that's how uh, the future needs to be built and, and we're watching how the current status quo isn't working mm-hmm.
1: Right and Jessica, of you worked um, Obviously at, at reddit on some of this kind of related related work. How would you you know kind of describe? Um, how how you think we got here and and how You've seen things basically kind of change under um, your time.
4: Yeah. um, When the major platforms started in the earlier 2000s, the rules that they created were based um, mostly around free speech, which in concept is good. But they did not take into account how that could be used for bad. And as the sites grew, they did not adapt to it. They just left the rules as they were basically from day one, for a very long time until they really have to address things because there's some sort of scandal that happens and suddenly all eyes are on this one issue and they have to address it. So instead of being proactive and keeping the bad things from happening, they just let them happen. And it's really, it comes down to to choices that they made in that process to simply look the other way or look at how many clicks they're getting, is this paying off, you know, and to go with the profit over the health of the platform. So now you have things like QAnon, which conspiracy theories used to just live in the corners and we might not necessarily hear about them, but now you have them amplified on sites like Reddit and then onto Facebook and now like CNN has to acknowledge this conspiracy theory as if it's a legitimate thing, but it's really a fringe idea and nobody did anything to sort of tamper that to keep these things from spreading and flourishing. Mm -hmm. They just again did not adapt to the situations that were happening on their platforms. So Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. I think is a failing on a lot of parts. How
1: how do you think the recent um, kind of news about Reddit, Reddit was recently in the news both for um, Alexis Ohanian Mm -hmm. stepping down from the company as well as they basically, you know, they shut down the Donald um, subreddit. Mm -hmm. How, you know, how do you think that was handled and anything that could have been handled differently Uh, in hindsight, since, you know.
4: I think that um, they let it go far too long, that that subreddit in particular was breaking rules long ago, and in the beginning, it probably seemed kind of small, like it wasn't that big of a deal, but as it grew, I think that our time, because it was so related to the president, and that I understand that would be hard to stop the subreddit that is it's not official but it's sort of official you know it was so popular and they didn't want to stifle that but at the same time it was just rule breaking so if they had applied their rules to that subreddit earlier they might have even been able to manage it and had it just be like a normal subreddit that you wouldn't have to quarantine and eventually shut down um so I think that that was a missed opportunity for them if they wanted to keep it, they could have maybe worked a little harder on that, although I'm not sure it actually would have worked. It was a very volatile place. Um, and I really commend Alexis on making the choice that he did. I think that probably took a lot for him to come to that conclusion. Um, I know he cares very much about Reddit. Um, so I think that, that was an interesting step to take, and it. I know that it is having... Uh, influence on their choices right now,
2: right? And, and Lauren, can I can I jump in and just add something to that? If that's okay. Yeah, absolutely. So, so I I, I appreciate that perspective Jessica is bringing on this on Reddit's kind of timeline here, right? But if we expand a little bit broader, um, you know, something I've heard said is Section two hundred and thirty is is uh, something that allows uh, the sort of clause federal, under federal statute that allows platforms to absolve themselves of doing things. It also allows platforms to do something, right? And it's actually this blunt instrument. It's a replacement for regulatory infrastructure where the government says, like, uh, you know, what's, what are the parameters? But in that, ca- in that scenario, right, what we're dealing with today is society basically bucking the status quo it's not good enough absolving is not good enough anymore reddit to me is a fascinating anecdote of that of that forward movement right and we're watching these enormous platforms have to deal with this this sort of social and commerce reality that this is, this is uh, this is untenable right um, something that I think it's is an interesting piece that I read uh, a New York Times piece about is this boycott working and know you know Chris uh, you mentioned um, you know Verizon's on a pause they're not necessarily part of some of these groups so I don't want to speak for that but I'd love to hear the kind of advertisers' perspective on hey, you know, at the end of the day, even these, because of all of these ads, because of all of the revenue coming in um, from different sources, small businesses, et cetera, even that kind of boycotting isn't necessarily working to, to really destabilize the profit model. So th- the point I'm making here um, is, is an objective one to say the business model is untenable for not just humans and oppression and civil rights, but for our republic.
4: Mm
1: hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Chris, can you um, kind of talk us through a little bit about one kind of what led you uh, to this this decision to pause your ads? And I I believe in the past, um, Verizon has done some similar work when it comes to YouTube. Uh, So we'd love to kind of get a better sense on what you learned there that maybe you're using Mm -hmm. um, this time and that sort of thing.
3: So it's a good question. And and to, to, to build on what Kevin was saying, I think that is, is this I can't speak to whether or not this this boycott is really having a measurable impact on Facebook's revenues because they obviously did not reveal that to me but what I can say is that in the experience that we've had uh, with trying to as I said uphold a standard that is true whether you're a social media platform or your you know a regular news site your New York Times CNN Wall Street Journal um, same rules apply same expectations apply from our end about what you'll do to ensure that our ads run where they're supposed to run and our ads run adjacent to content that we believe is not only appropriate for our ads to run next to, but is just generally appropriate for you know, a, a site and a, and a broad kind of user safety uh, type type, type uh, set of considerations. What we have found and what we make one of our principles in how we go about uh, you know, navigating this space is that we wanna work with you. We wanna work with our partners uh, and, and let them see exactly what we expect from a content policy standpoint for advertiser safety. We want them to hopefully give them access to, give us access, I should say, uh, to the teams that on their end that work on oversight, that work on policy. They're gonna try to do everything they can to use uh, filters and algorithms to detect uh, uh, bad actors. And good for them, and that's the right thing to do, given the scale of their operation. It's, it's very difficult to try to do this simply with, with human checkers doing everything. However. Um, the algorithms aren't going to catch everything. And the bad actors are going to come up with ways to circumvent those algorithms. So the presence of a, of a, of a point of view, a very clearly stated point of view out to the open market. And then a set of people who are accountable for enforcing that point of view is a key piece of, I think, how we're going to continue moving forward in this space. And the interesting thing about the human point of view is that there will be different perspectives uh, and there should be different perspectives in a group of people um, to decide what's going to work. Ultimately, it leaves the choice in the advertisers' hands as to whether or not those standards are aligned with the advertisers. And fortunately, there's still a lot of choice out there as to where to buy and where to show up so that you can vote with your vote with your budget in some ways and say, you know, it's environments like these that we wanna be in and these environments like these, they're free to make their own choices, but that's not where we're gonna be. Um, for a long time, that's the way it worked anyway. Uh, but I think it's, again, it's, it's coming to a head for all of the points that my colleagues on the panel have made today. Um, bad actors, extremists, any, you know, child, ex- child exploiters. Like, I mean, there's, there's a host of, uh, and, you know, bad actors. I don't know how else to put it. I'll put it that way. Uh, who, who are out there, not just to even try to espouse a, uh, an ethos or push a philosophy, or sometimes they're just there to cause trouble, just there to create problems. And, um, I think that the the platforms themselves have to recognize that, have to do what they can algorithmically to shut that out, stamp it out. And then the next piece of it that we're trying to push right now is deterrence. It's one thing to to see. And I know that Google, as a result of a lot of their own efforts and and influence that we had on them, have now started reporting things directly to the appropriate authorities and and wasting no time getting incredibly dangerous activity uh, alerted to the right people who can do something about it from an enforcement standpoint. Uh, but at the same time, I think we, we can all be doing more. We can instruct them to do more with deterrence, like, hey, this thing you're about to post violates our content guidelines. Are you sure you want to try to get this up? You know, are, are we doing more to let you know that penalties will happen if you violate our guidelines going forward? The community itself has to be part of helping people understand that this whole thing only survives. If we are, if we're creating a safe environment for people to 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 provide for open expression, to share opinions when they are presented as opinions, but when they when it's misinformation, when it's when it's dangerous, when it's threats, that shouldn't be allowed no matter what, no matter what mm-hmm. you believe. And that's the kind of stuff that we're uh, we're trying to help the platforms understand that
2: mm-hmm. and deter
3: it.
1: We talked a little bit in our uh, prep, kind of prep call leading up to this too that I believe so Verizon has, if you can kind of better explain this, that would be great. But there are like three, I believe different things that you've specifically kind of asked for, three tangible uh, things that you use in determining whether a platform is uh, okay for you to to advertise on. But can you kind of explain that um, a little bit?
3: Yeah, I've mentioned a couple of them. I do really quickly. It's um, it's as I said, it's it's your, you've got your own very clear point of view on brand safety, and you've got internal controls to ensure and enforce that to the best that you can. That's number one. Number two is you allow and enable third-party audits of those same standards because we don't necessarily want the platforms checking their own homework. There's got to be something that's uh, sort of a, you know, as I said, a third-party arbiter of, of what's going on there. And then the last thing, as I mentioned before, is having that human oversight and giving access to your marketing partners uh, to I- interface with that team, because the, the, uh, inter- the landscape will evolve new means of circumventing uh, the standards and the, and the systems that are in place will emerge. It's up to you. It's up to us to keep you aware of what those things are. And it's up to you to tell us how you're going to respond to those things. So it's, you know, your own sort of brand safety point of view and, and platform. It's third party and it's access to your, your policy team that are uh, that, that what we ask for.
1: I see. Okay. Great. Um, well, maybe this is a a good question for either, uh, Kevin or, or, um, Jessica, just about, you know, what role you could think social media is going to play in the upcoming 2020 election that perhaps we didn't see in 2016. Um, would love some of your, your thoughts there as we kind of near in the final months, uh, leading Mm -hmm. up to the election. Sure.
4: Great.
2: Uh, Yeah, happy to. Um, I have I have lots of thoughts about that. Um, So you know, I want to start an insertion point here that's relevant and timely is Twitter's um, what I will call weak hand slapping of um, uh, misinformation on COVID. Uh, I want to be clear here. I mean, it took a global pandemic for them to softly call out what otherwise is an sort of an inert. Uh, um, to an inert effect, uh, a, a, the U.S. president and his sort of administration and his supporters uh, inf- misinformation that it, about uh, dealing with this public health crisis, right? Um, one quick point to make is that risk slapping does very little when the inertia has already been generated, right? So coming back to this notion of the business model and the infrastructure being just not fit for a functioning Republic, right? And also not fit for uh, Chris's constituents, wh- whether it's customers or stakeholders, shareholders, because guess what? They don't like racists either, right? <laughs> and they don't like misinformation either. So this point here just larger infrastructures isn't fit. So how is this gonna affect the election? I mean, um, the the current US president usurped the American free press with a Twitter account. We have to reckon with that. We've been reckoning with that for the last four years, and we're going to have to reckon with that this election as well because that's their tactic, right? Um, when misinformation is weaponized and, and to, to a large degree, we can expect more of it. Um, I think the state attorneys generals, uh, I really appreciate you bringing that up, Lauren, because what's happening here is right now, those uh, folks that are dealing with access to the polls and this election from a, a you know local perspective in terms of actually voting and determining who the president will be, et cetera, they're thinking through, how is this misinformation going to spread in, throughout society through my state? So they're asking Facebook, the de facto online public square, right? Hey, what are you guys doing about this private company whose incentive structure has a very little to do if vote by mail works? It has a lot to do if the conspiracy theorist with a the green screen behind him has a lot more clicks than the New York Times journalist and journalists like yourself, Lauren, who are dodging bullets abroad to bring stories to us, right? How is this going to affect the election? Look, I'm from Ohio, so I bring a less of a coastal perspective per se. I'm worried. I'm worried that misinformation might win out. What I'm hopeful for is this moment in time. The reason we're having this conversation is that humans are better than the system that isn't working for them. Um, we will have to, uh, um, we will have to buck the status quo if the election results are going to be more deterministic around actual facts than misinformation. Um, I'll, I'll pause there. There's a lot more interesting threads here with the pandemic and misinformation. Obviously, this moment in, in, in time. Uh, uh, I should say to all um, the folks listening, uh, unfortunately, scheduling uh, she couldn't make it, but uh, we had a, a representative from Color of Change who was going to be on our panel, um, Jade, uh, and who's spoken, who's been outspoken with other organizations, including the NAACP, about the insufficiency of these platforms when it comes to civil rights uh, advocacy and just oppression online in the digital space. So if we were able to turn that corner in, in forward movement, it will not be because – it would be because we, we bucked Facebook and Twitter's uh, business models.
1: Right, right, right. We'd actually kind of talked about Twitter a little bit, too, because they were – I mean, actually, as of, I believe, yesterday, Facebook uh, took down a, a, what they would, what they considered a misleading um, Post from Trump, but uh, Twitter's done it a few different times. And um, we talked a little bit about kind of is there anything different, again, from kind of the business model perspective mm-hmm. when it comes to that? Uh, I believe Chris talked a little bit about how you were kind of under the impression that Twitter would be more um, uh, doing more in this realm, I believe, in the coming months because they were because of the advertiser. Uh, Angle is what we were talking about a little bit before, but we'd love love any of your thoughts, I guess, on where Twitter kind of fits into this conversation.
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I can speak to it a little bit, um, but I would I would like to hear what Jessica has to say because again, so much about what we're trying to do is again, as I said, you know, vote vote with our wallets a little bit and say we expect the platforms to take editorial accountability for what's there. If you're taking advertising dollars, then that's what's expected of you. Um, I was, you know, I, whether, how effective the hand slaps and then the moves are gonna be is absolutely debatable. Um, do I uh, think Twitter was was quicker to make the right move in this? Yes, I do. Um, I think they've, they've taken a more public stance around it as well. And it seems that they have the support of their employees to do it. Uh, it's, it's something that again, most of the uh, community of Twitter is, is behind. Um, but from a, from a standpoint of revenue, yeah, I mean, if, if, if you're saying that uh, political dollars may be slower to come to you because you're going to be more rigid in enforcing uh, policies of fact-checking and things like that on uh, posts that come from politicians, even if they're paying for the ads, um, that's a consideration. That's something that you're going to have to bear in mind, and they may look to, you know, uh, they may look to other platforms to do it um, that, that's, that's the kind of decision that their, uh, teams on the, on the app product side and in the engineering side are going to have to make. Um, but that it's definitely, it's absolutely going to be a factor. And I think that other platforms are struggling with that decision. Mm-hmm. hmm
1: Yeah. Jessica, I would love, um, you talked a little bit about kind of what goes into, um, you know, a, mo- a moderation policy and that sort of thing. How does that, uh, play into you know, the, the business model for a lot of these platforms that primarily uh, you know, make money from advertising?
4: Um, I think that plays a huge role in it. But I think that it has gone from possibly the wrong point of view for a while. Um, thinking about the number of clicks that you'll get, how many eyeballs you'll get on an ad, and taking that as the number that matters most instead of um, what are you putting this ad next to? What is the content that it's sitting next to? And does this ad actually want to be near that content? Or do the people creating that content want that ad near them? Um, like Previously, at in a community for young women, primarily with a feminist point of view, there was an ad run um, for a site called Instant Checkmate, which is a site that aggregates personal information. So it can be easily manipulated by stalkers basically and so the ads for this would always feature a young woman looking very scared and with the name instant checkmate it's already you've been caught or whatever and then you have this image of the young scared woman in this community of young women who like they don't want to see that that's it's pretty offensive really and it did eventually get taken down but we had to go to the top of the advertising team to have that done and it was really just a poorly thought out like throw the ad in this space kind of mentality with it. So if people can be more thoughtful about what people actually want in their communities or on their platforms or next to their content and be more thoughtful about what the advertisers want to be next to, I think that's where it will come together. But that takes a lot of thinking on both sides of that issue. Like you really have to put all of those perspectives into the equation.
0: Mm Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. One well, also I would be curious about if some of these, um, how, po- how platforms can kind of identify some of those potential holes when they're making policies because, um, you know, is that how, how do you kind of bake that into a policy when you're creating it versus ending up in uh, that situation that you just explained with the advertiser?
4: I think it's really important to have somebody on that team who is familiar with the platform and the users and the atmosphere on the platform. Like what, what do you want to maintain there? What do you have and what do you want to maintain? What do you want to encourage? And have that person poke holes in these policies. Like think of the worst thing that can be done with this policy. Think of how it can be abused. Think of how it can be worked around. Have a worst case scenario person on hand basically to help you go through all of the potential problems. And that's, the way that you can sort of mitigate those problems is you have to think about them first. And that's when you're basing your rules on free speech and advertising, you're not thinking of worst case scenarios. So I think that that's kind of a shift that has to happen.
2: Mm -hmm. And and can I, can I take uh, what Jessica said there and just add to it? it, Free speech uh, without consequences is not something that exists in regular society. Why does it exist online? Right? So, um, there's an interesting way to, to think about this that, that to me sort of the civics brain in me it, you know engages. The transaction point right now in, in on these platforms, the reason they run and they're incredibly lucrative and, and, and whatnot is because the tech company deals with the advertiser, right? Advertiser gives money to the tech platform, the platform delivers eyeballs and people and clicks. The simple you know, a simple architecture to adjust this is to give the, the, the center of power shift it from the platform to the humans, right? There can be absolute value exchanged uh, between all parties uh, and the the platform itself, if it architects that uh, ecosystem. But ultimately, part of the problem is, and I really appreciate Jessica's head on this and where she's coming from, because your question, Lauren, and Jessica's answer is talking about the platform arbiters, right, the folks that are architecting platform policies as the principal owners of how this all goes. What if we said, no, screw that. Let's give the ownership of how this all goes to the humans on the platform. Guess what? We have self-government here in America. Yeah, it doesn't work super well sometimes, but we have it here in America, and there's prolific commerce within that infrastructure, and the representatives, the architects of policy are beholden to the people within this society. So if Facebook was built today, it wouldn't be built the way it's built because of the clear insufficiency, the clear deficiency, the human suffering happening on its back. Right. We know that now the future is going to be different. And I'm optimistic, not because Facebook's going to make changes. They're stuck. They're stuck with their profit model. Right. I'm optimistic because other people are going to make changes and build stuff that's better. So the humans. So, so Jade from color of change is going to be on here and her, her uh, organization can feel uh, like it, like they're, they're have are Say and equality and resources and access onto that platform. So Chris doesn't have to deal with the, the sort of grossness of, of conspiracy theories when they're trying to market good product and abiding by other regulations that say they're not lying about their products, right? Whether it's customers or shareholders. So that we all can collectively operate and not have entire swaths of America um, Weaponized around misinformation, I guarantee you, if we sliced up those states' attorneys generals who are asking Facebook how they're going to handle misinformation, one party is actually the one doing all of the asking, the other one's sitting aside because they're benefiting hugely from the misinformation in chief of of uh, the current administration. Right, so it's 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 a uh, it's a big problem. Um, if we don't fix digital digital interaction, digital society, I, I really do fear for the the, the integrity of the republic.
1: Mm-hmm. How do you, I guess, thinking about regulation? Obviously, there's been a lot of talk about how some of these platforms, what what regulation would look like. Um, So, be curious about, you know, how you how you kind of see that taking shape on different Mm -hmm. platforms. Is there a platform moderation right right? I mean, we kind of
2: blasted
1: platforms. So, is there anyone that's doing it, you know, that's that's doing it well?
2: Sure. Sure, sure. So I would say, I and mean, I'll say a couple quick things, but this is kind of the policy thinking and, and very much welcome Jessica and, and, and Chris's practitioner's perspective here. Um, there is clearly a threshold for an operative threshold. Chris was mentioned it a couple times and just how you know, Verizon interacts with these platforms where this is, if it looks like a duck, walks like a duck, yeah, it's, it's probably a duck, right? It operates like a media entity, right? It operates like a journalistic institution. If that threshold's met, and you know, we can dice up the details of how, then these entities have to be regulated and thought of as those institutions. And if they don't like being doing that, they need to draw the line somewhere so they can make money the ways they like making money, which is hate, hate, speak, and misinformation, right? So that's one, that's one thing, the general sort of philosophy. Um, platforms that are doing it well, I, I mean, the big ones, they don't exist right now. That's, that's the truth. I want to give one example here. I promise uh, uh, um, I know very little about this. It was literally a conversation I had um, with a, a friend of mine who's in Senate Homeland Security uh, just about different products that are out there, but I don't know a ton about it. It's a, it's a browser uh, option called Brave, um, and uh, they are it playing with a model where... Uh, it, it's some inter- interplay between you on the, the browser have this ability to sort of um, decide what kind of advertisement you're facing and you actually interact with the ad revenue. So there's, there's an ability to say, look, like if I'm choosing the people in which I do commerce with, you know, the fact that they're able to do commerce with me, that's valuable to the, to them. There is a, um, a sort of an exchange there that, that that's that's uh, less like, hey, let me get on the platform and then tech company gets all the data and then, then packages it up and ships it off and sells it and the only people that benefit are the tech company shareholders, right? So they're trying to break that model so th- the answer is it doesn't exist which is why i'm worried about november uh, and uh, i hope somebody's building it and it gets built right
1: right, right. Just yeah i, would, I is- would jump in
3: uh, just if i could uh, jump a couple things there the one is very familiar with, with brave i think i'm a huge huge fan of not being quite so um binary about data privacy or, or data free form, everybody can use it the way they want. I think the companies that are going to uh, emerge is, is tremendously useful and knowledgeable about what this new space demands is those that, to Kevin's point, provide control. So certain, uh, certain cohorts in, the, in America uh, are more than happy to share their personal data if they're getting some kind of value back. And we can be much, much more uh, prescriptive and clear about what that value is uh, acting as a company that does, in fact, uh, use anonymized data to target advertising new things we need to do to help us save money by not just blasting everything out to everyone. We want to tailor those messages. We think it can be better for you if, you, if you're only getting stuff that's pertinent to you, but there needs to be a value exchange in that data to make that happen. So I think that some of the uh, companies that are trying to solve for that right now are a little bit more in the all or nothing space. I'm not turning off cookies. I'm shutting all that stuff off. That's going to choke off revenue to the open web. And and we were talking about this a little bit before when, when that happens, then, oh my God, all of a sudden your choice really gets limited. Uh, And I I think generally that's probably not what we want overall. However, uh, I do, I do completely agree that that companies that really lean into the ability to provide control and provide very open, clear value exchange on data are going to, are going to take this a little bit further. The other thing was. Kevin, you pointed out uh, putting sort of the revenue opportunities in the control of the users, since they're the ones creating the content, they're the ones kind of, you know, propagate, bringing the eyeballs to these platforms. The, the wrinkle in that, and I've thought about it myself too, and I'm not saying it's a close debate, but the wrinkle in it is um, what some of, the, some of these platforms have claimed is that because you've selected what goes into your feed, whom you follow, who you're friends with, whatever that is, then your feed is by definition for you brand safe. I think that's a tough argument. I, I don't really buy that. And so I think in order to bridge the gap between, as I said, the community really being a force in enforcing and deterring the bad actors on the platform and having a stake in it, we're gonna have to figure out some way to bridge the gap between those things. Centralized editorial uh, to meet the advertisers needs, but then also, again, putting more control in the hands of the community uh, to, to, to create an environment that's, that's brand safe and that's attractive.
1: You know? mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you see any kind of um, the whole talk? I guess about ad, basically ad spend on the open web, think publishers, uh, etc., versus platforms. Um, is that is that changing how you're thinking about your your ad spend uh, at all? Or you're, are you thinking about those types of things when you're?
3: It definitely is. Like we're we're thinking very we're, we're trying to think in, in scenario plan for what the future is going to hold. Um, I don't think it will just. I don't think it'll be constant expansion. I don't think there will be enough money for new websites, new blogs, new affiliates. Like everybody that has found a way to support themselves via you know digital media marketing economy, it's not just going to extend forever. There will be some kind of contraction, and whether it's policy driven, whether it's uh, user privacy driven, whatever it might be. Uh, we have to prepare for what that future is going to look like. And I do think that, you know, there are, and I'm, I'm talking to some other companies right now about what the future of the of the more open web looks like if you're not one of the big four, uh, how do you make sure that you can sustain uh, a primarily ad supported uh, type of environment? So uh, it is, I wish I could say I have more answers for you right now, but it's, it's, a, it's a definitely a concern.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay. I know we only have a couple, a few minutes left, but I did want to ask, um, Jessica how she you know speaking to this kind of larger issue about regulation, what you know you think platforms will will look like going forward and how you do that uh, any thoughts you have on like what companies can basically be doing now uh, to, to address some of this and where some of this is headed?
4: Yeah, I think that one of the things that a lot of larger platforms don't really want to do too much of is have human moderation so Facebook has human moderation. Who primarily deal with the worst of the worst content Um, and they need more people more people on Facebook more people who deal with just regular content and helping to manage the health of the overall site rather than just as the front line of the worst of the worst Um, and I think that's kind of an across-the-board thing that people want to rely on AI to remove things but that doesn't really work very efficiently. Um, it can be abused by reporting things that don't need to be reported and then it's automatically taken down. It's Things just get abused that way. And if you have more humans looking at things, you can have different points of view on them and come to decisions on how it's best to handle a situation. And thinking like that and knowing the context of something is something that AI cannot accomplish. So that's where I feel like platforms need to go. They need to remember that humans can do this work. They just need to find yeah. them and hire them and train them.
1: Yeah, that kind of gets back to our larger point about if the, if the platforms are tech companies or media companies, and presumably with the human, uh, you know, doing some, some moderation, there is a, there is an element of a, being a media sort of-
4: you know, I don't know, because that's how it always was You know, in the early days of community. It was human moderated it was before ai did anything um but it was very community oriented it was humans interacting with humans so i'm not sure it has to become a media space i think that's sort of a choice that platforms have made again um they don't necessarily have to be like that and somebody can create something new that isn't like that and it's going to be really human oriented i think that's where it's going to head now because Now people, you know, we've been stuck home for like five months. We have no contact with our friends. People are realizing how much it matters that, yes, you can get on Facebook and go to this little group of people that you know because you all like to knit or because you all like houseplants and you can connect with those people. And even though it's maybe a silly topic, you can still sort of find camaraderie there and feel less alone. So the more that people have those experiences, the more they're going to need human spaces on the internet.
1: Right, right, right.
4: Well, um, I think
1: that's about all the time we have. I know we're going to kind of keep the last little portion open for Q&A, which Don um, wants to handle, so take it away.
0: Thank you so much. Thanks for the great conversation, everyone. Actually, Jessica, I had a follow-up for you um, regarding your comment on human interaction. Um, How do you see the viability of more fledgling platforms like Mastodon, um, and have you heard of anything else that's Uh, more community and human-based and not just um, the usual social media model of, you know, screaming down a crowded tunnel?
4: Um, Honestly, there isn't very much that's different. Um, It's, I think, the thing with Mastodon is it's not super accessible. Mm. It has this sort of um, tech threshold that you have to be familiar with or comfortable with to get involved in it. So I think there needs to be something more accessible, like, um, I mean, Facebook is very accessible and that's one of the things that makes it easy. Everybody can use it, you know, like your 80 year old grandmother can do fine on it. And also, you know, your seven year old who isn't supposed to be on it can do fine on it. So we need to make something that's accessible but also has the foundation in place to provide um, the structure to have a healthy community, to have these healthy social media spaces and be supported and have the rules actually enforced and have support enforcing the rules within your own community. So that most people do want to create a community and enforce the rules themselves. They want to maintain it. But if they don't have support from the entire platform, it's really hard to get that done. So it just needs to be really focused on what people actually need.
0: Sure, thank you for that. Um, And a note, so uh, we have a question from our attendees for the whole panel. Um, What do you feel the components of an ideal policy is versus What's a feasible policy in today's uh, climate?
2: That's a uh, that's a great question. I, I'll maybe I'll jump at it first. Um, I think I uh, I love thinking about what's ideal. Um, you know, fortunately, we can't get Congress to agree on on you know what to name a post office. So what's feasible becomes pretty pretty different conversation. You know, to me, what's ideal is as we it's difficult to argue against the fact that that digital interaction and digital society, if I can say it that way, is looking more like and is just one for one um, on par with IRL society, real, real life society. So the problem is masquerading as something or not and anonymity and those types of things are, uh, they're runaway trains online. So if we are to sort of interact with each other um, you know, it's it's that whole dynamic of if, if you're a young kid and you uh, bully somebody and you see them cry, you feel bad because we 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 um, react emotionally to tears of another human being. But online, with anonymity, you can hide hide behind a, a certain facade and 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 operate accordingly. And I'm not I'm not making a commentary on anonymity by itself. All I'm saying is specifically specific policies and ideal policy architecture for online interaction would ensure that we can mirror some of those consequences and compensate accordingly. Long extra, you know, its own webinar to, to, to sort of talk about how, but that's the way that I philosophically think about it.
0: And do you to, and- to
3: carry on to carry on Kevin's point of view, like I agree wholeheartedly. Um, and I think a lot of the platforms are enacting common common IRL type punishments, you know, timeouts and, and such. Uh, for when they notice the bad behavior. So if it's you're banned for seven days, can't log in. Uh, um, is that going to be enough to, to help you force you to rethink your behavior when you do get back on? Uh, another violation, you may be permanently banned. Okay, there's ways around that. You can come up with a different email address. We can, you know, we can sneak back on the platform another way, another persona. Or is the platform smart enough to notice that your IP address is the same or that your device ID is the same? And that way it just creates more and more deterrence and makes it harder and harder for you to do something that for you may be casual. It's not even something that, you know, you're really intent on making other people feel bad. It's something where you don't even realize uh, the the impact of of what you're doing. But it's enough to get you to rethink it and force you to rethink it. I think any progress we can make on that front policy-wise will help, will be noticeably helpful. Um, Not saying it's perfect, but I think it gets us closer to the end.
4: Just to add a little thing onto that, because I think they've covered a lot, um, most trolls are not hardcore hellbent on doing damage. They want to make little sort of drive-by issues where they cause a little trouble and move on. So if there's any road bump in front of them to do that, they'll get deterred. They'll be like, I don't want to bother with this anymore. So just placing little steps in between that kind of behavior and getting it onto the platform can do... Wonders. So that's, they're like little steps that platforms can take if they really want to deter these things.
0: And and one last quick question um, uh, before we wrap up. I know we've talked about the human element and we've talked about human interaction and moderation, uh, but how do you feel we can hold these platforms accountable in general? You know, the the boycotts only last so long. The the uproar may only you know be for a particular subreddit or a particular community on Facebook. Um, how do you how do you feel we can really hold them accountable to make lasting change?
2: Yeah, look, I mean, I I, I feel uh, very strongly about this, um, and it's just one syllable, one word, and it's vote. It, it really is. Um, let, let me just expand a little bit here. AB5 here in California, uh, where, where I currently live, is a fascinating um, um, exchange between uh, proposition work and, and human, um, let's say, uh, interest in architecting the le- regulatory infrastructure so it catches up with the gig economy. So AB5 is basically uh, redefining, it, it, it's, a, it's a piece of a, pot- a potential law that would redefine what it means to be a contractor. And this is all born from the, the Uber, Lyft, Postmates, sort of that, that world, right? Um, that is an answer to the lack of parameters and lack of policy um uh, that uh, that that exists to sort of it, of course there's different sides of that argument i'm not making a a, um, a point on which side's better or not i'm saying the way to 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 solve this is policy has to catch up with the debacle and that means vote into the states where you can put propositions together go get signatures in states where you can't elect representatives so this is on on the top 2 3 of their agenda items and if they don't actually act on it if they get elected because of misinformation, information hold them accountable and go vote you know it's that's it's it's really it's crazy how it's simple it can it is even as complex as a problem is it's
0: difficult these days right uh, voter suppression and all that kind of stuff but but that's how we solve it Jessica Chris any comments
4: um I think that one of the things people go to pretty quickly is to um, destroy section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. And that is something that I think is appetizing to people who don't really understand how useful it is in all the ways that it's useful. Like Kevin mentioned earlier, that it also allows platforms to remove the content that they don't want on the platform. So although it also keeps them from being sued if they miss something, basically that's really really important and if it is going to be changed because I'm sure it could be better there could be more parameters that help define what is allowed and what is not allowed but it needs to be done by people who truly understand it and truly understand the internet and unfortunately that's those are not generally the people who are trying to change it so we could end up with something that is so drastic that you can't even have amazon reviews anymore like it takes away everything because it can't risk having anything so that's something people talk about, but it needs to be handled very carefully, but it could possibly work if handled by the correct people.
3: My, my, my only add would be, um, you, you made the point, Don, that the boycotts do end, um, they, they tend to be movements. Um, I think the boycott for those that are participating in it is it, it galvanizes, it, it gets people to move at once and it creates awareness for it. And working in marketing, that's, there's role, there's a value to that no matter what. Um, we're not we're, we're doing this because uh, you know as i said our, we're off until our standards are met and so my only point would be i think if uh, you know we take we take a strong role on this if all advertisers did the same um, it would be less of an ebb and flow and more of a consistent thing that happens in the marketplace. Um, I think it's important for each advertiser, and marketer, and, and player in this space to come up with their own standards that are appropriate for them. It won't be blanket for everybody. Uh, but if you do that, then I think we'll see, we'll see more uh, lasting change.
0: And thank you for that. And last question from our, our audience. Uh, is there any new technology being developed that you feel is gonna handle these issues better than the existing uh, systems we have? Uh, I know Jessica mentioned humans. Uh, is is there some AI technology that's really good at pinpointing this and weeding it out or do we still have to um, hire a lot of people who have to go through the, the horrible task of, uh, of moderating?
4: Yeah, I'm still on board with people. Um, AI just doesn't get context yet. I'm sure that people are working on it and I'm sure that there are really, really innovative things happening and someday it will be there, but currently, it just isn't and I think humans are really we can do it and I mean they're already doing the worst of the worst content so it's not a huge leap to let humans do the stuff that isn't as bad and, <laughs> you know
2: and I would love to add to that um I, I think it's it's also incentives um you know I have a background my policy background's in environmental policy and, and uh, public health regulatory policy and Yeah, acid rain was a big problem. And under the auspices of the Clean Air Act and the EPA, which I worked at uh, for for some time, which regulates under the Clean Air Act, a cap and trade system was constructed by a bunch of libertarians and environmentalists. And now acid rain isn't a problem. It was a incentive structure put behind something. Frankly, electrification of a society is much more necessary than your Facebook posts, right? So behind a, a commodity and a good that we need, and it solved for a harm, pollution, acid rain. It's about incentives. It's about incentives. Um, and I just want—I want to make this extra connection to what Jessica's saying because uh, the approach to the problem absolutely can be like we can look at what's going on and 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 help uh, smooth out those wrinkles. And I, and I agree with her on that point. Um, it really isn't a big leap to just expand that human vector to do the medium problem, not just like the you know the the worst, of the worst. But in addition to that, if you can realign incentives, you can build incentives around stuff where you're not profiting off of, you know, lies and uh, misinformation.
3: The, the, to go back to the technology question for one second, I think that just the points are well made. The, the visual recognition and image recognition to prevent uh, that kind of content from getting online is getting better and better. I think yes. semantic analysis is the thing where we still have a bridge to cross. And I don't, the same word can be used productively and horribly offensively. Uh, and that's the kind of thing that a computer has a hard time, you know, making a, a judgment on. Um, semantic analysis also carries with it some very interesting ramifications. If again, if computers start to be able to put sentences together and construct, then faking a human becomes a lot easier to do too. So th- these things always carry with it good and bad, but. For now, I would say if there's, if there's a way to get the semantic analysis improved so that, f- so that fruitful, helpful can, discussion can survive and threats and other awful discussion can be, can be banished, uh, we'll be in a better place.
4: I agree completely.
0: Well, that, I appreciate that. Thank you so much. Uh, we've had all our questions for today. I really wanna thank our panel uh, for your uh, expertise, your brilliant insights, and thank you to everyone in attendance today. Um, one last reminder, to please sign up for our newsletter at thinkla.org to stay up to date on upcoming events and great webinars like this. This was incredibly informative. I learned a lot and uh, I was so grateful to be able to hear your perspective. Um, For those of you who are ThinkLA members, thank you for being here and thank you for your membership. For those of you who aren't, uh, please join today and uh, if you're a member, we encourage you to renew. We'll be sending out a survey after this webinar later today. We rely on your feedback to keep these going, to improve them constantly, And to come up with the content that you're looking for that will help thank you so much and take care everybody have a great day thank you for joining us for this episode to find out more about our upcoming webinars and events please go to thinkla.org you'll also find information on membership and how we continue our mission of serving the los angeles advertising marketing and media community take care